Go to Psalm 23. This is where we're going to be. And, um, and I'm going to, I had a bunch of notes that I kind of went through and edited last night because I saw some things I didn't see before. So some of this is going to be on the fly. Some of this is not. Um, Psalm 23. There is what I've been calling a, a pattern um, in Psalm 23. And it's kind of a six step, I guess you would call it pattern that um, I'm going to show you. But let me give you some kind of backstory real quick before we get into that. Um, so Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a really uh, cohesive, um, how, 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 what's the best way I want to say this? They flow very seamlessly together and on purpose. And so let me give you some, some uh, context to this. Psalm 22 starts, and I'm going to just read a little bit of this, and I want you to tell me if this sounds, any, if this sounds familiar, okay? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Okay. Um, this is what Jesus says on the cross. It's really interesting. Let me just, just quit. Uh, why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and your ancestor, or excuse me, in you our ancestor trusted. They they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jump ahead to fourteen. I am poured out. See if this sounds familiar. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like. <clears throat> like a pot sherd, and my mouth sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Does that sound familiar? Okay, all sounds familiar. Skip ahead to 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nation. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth, who are dead, bow down before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, past tense and future tense, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim, listen, and proclaim his deliverance to all people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. That's Psalm 22. Now, just to give you a review, Jesus, when he is on the cross and he says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not saying that God has forsaken him, number one, because Jesus is God. So how does God forsake himself? Okay, so God did not forsake Jesus on the cross because Jesus is God. So why is Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the Jewish mind, for you to begin a psalm is for you to recall in those who were listening that psalm. So when you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of the Jewish audience would have started, why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry about and go through the whole psalm. So by you stating the first part of the psalm in the Jewish way of thinking is triggering that psalm in your head. Number one, they memorized most of the Bible, most of the Old Testament. Okay, So that was a very easy thing for them. Number two, there is a lot of poetic, um, poetic use of language and ways of speaking and ways of writing that we do not have in English. Okay, 
And this is one of those ways. The first, the first um, stanza in the song would have been a reminder and point to the rest of the psalm. How does that psalm end? Proclaiming his deliverance to all people yet unborn. That's you and I. Saying that he has done it. And what happens after Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In your hands I commend my spirit. What does he say? It is finished. We might say like this. It is done. And proclaim his deliverance to all people yet unborn, saying he has done it. Okay? So when Jesus starts out, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not aiming at the Father saying, Why have you forsaken me? He's aiming at those watching saying, You don't understand what's happening, but you're about to. God is doing it. How is he doing it? Because I am God that you nailed to a tree. Okay? Because if you back up, All who sleep in the earth shall bow down to him. Okay? And before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. That all who have died will bow down to him, and all that will die in the future will bow down to him. If it's all in the past and all in the future, it's all. Okay? So there is a totality of redemption that's happening in Psalm 22 that David, and then later on Jesus, is calling Israel to understand that even when they are in a really awful place, mostly because of the disobedience of their own ways, in the end, God will still bring deliverance to everyone. Okay? That's the point of the psalm. That's the point of Jesus speaking it. Why do I say that? Because a lot of scholars agree that Psalm 23 is a song of trust that was possibly evoked by an experience of deliverance such as the one that was written about in Psalm 22. So a lot of scholars have agreed that Psalm 23, it is highly possible, maybe even likely, that the song of trust in Psalm 23 was evoked by the experience that produced Psalm 22. So if Psalm 22 is a psalm that speaks to the deliverance that ultimately came by way of Jesus, then we look at Psalm 23 and look at what our lives might respond like on the other side of what Christ has done. Okay? So I'm giving you all that backstory to jump into Psalm 23. I might get to Psalm 24 after that, but we'll save. I'll I'll see how much time we got. So, um, before I read Psalm 23, I want to read just a couple of verses in John 10 from Jesus' own mouth. So, don't turn there. Keep it in Psalm 23. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. You can hear this. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. He's talking about probably the religious leaders. 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down um, my life for the sheep I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock 
one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Amazing stuff there. I want to point out one thing. He says, I'm the good shepherd, okay, or a couple of things. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. The hired hand, when the wolf comes in, runs for his life and leaves the sheep for dead. Okay? But I'm the good shepherd that when the wolf comes in, I don't run away. I actually lay down my life for the life of the sheep. Okay? So you can ask the question, what is the wolf? I'll let you deal with that. But when that comes in, when a foreign enemy comes into the flock, the good shepherd lays down his life in order that the sheep might live. But he says this in 16. I have other sheep, Gentiles, that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Anybody remember? Anybody who's not Jews. So if you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles, who do you now have? Everyone. Okay? Okay. So I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Listen. So there will be one flock and one shepherd for that reason. What reason? There being one flock and one shepherd. For that reason, the Father loves me. Because I laid down my life in order to take it up again, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down and I take it back up. That is a powerful verse, too. I'm not preaching on this, but Jesus is saying, not only can anybody not take my life, I lay down my life, but not only do I lay down my life, I take my life up again if I choose. That's some, that's some power, you know what I'm saying? And that's also such a bad-to-the-bone-like statement. You know what I'm saying? Can you, you know, like, not only... Can y'all not take my life? I lay it down. But not only do I lay it down, when I'm ready, I'll take it back up. You know. So, that's who Jesus is. Now, let's go to Psalm 23, finally. I know a lot of y'all are like, dear Lord, we said Psalm 23 12 minutes ago. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures, okay? He leads me beside still waters, or other translation is waters of rest. He restores my soul, or life, is the other translation. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake, other translation. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long or forever. Okay, amazing. We all know that. Been there, done that, heard it, got the bumper sticker and the T-shirt. But there's some stuff in here I don't think that we've caught. And most of the reason we haven't called it is because we've heard it a thousand times that we, even when I read it just now, it probably did nothing for you. I mean, let's just be real. Like, when I read that just now, it was probably like, okay, Lord's my shepherd. I like now that he leads me to the door. You know, you know it. But let me show you some stuff in this. Okay. 
So there's six steps. I, I, I can't think of a better word. But there's six steps that David, the writer of this psalm, walks us through that I believe you have to see in succession in order to grasp the fullness of what Psalm 23 is trying to say. So let me, let me bring these up. Uh, number one, the Lord is my shepherd, okay? And if you want to write this down, this is an amazing thing to write down. How do you spell shepherd? Lord. Um, <laughs> E-R-D, okay. I was about to put A-R-D. Um, yeah, getting a master's degree, can't spell shepherd. All right. The Lord is my shepherd, okay? The Lord is my shepherd. Before you move on into anything else, there has to be 100% solidified that the Lord is the one leading you, not you, not anybody around you, not even your pastor. It's the Lord that is your shepherd. Now, hopefully, and I can only speak for the church, if you're in this church, if you follow me, I'll lead you here. I'm not going to lead you where I'm going. I'm going to lead you where he's going, okay? But even so, I don't want you to follow me as a pastor. I want you to see me and follow the Lord. I want you to see how I follow the Lord and then follow the Lord as I follow the Lord, not follow me. Does that make sense? Okay. So before you jump into anything, you have to have solidified within you that the Lord is your shepherd. Why? Because he's going to lead you into some places that do not make sense. And if you have it solidified in you that he and he alone is my shepherd, then you'll follow him even when it leads to things that do not make sense or even when it leads to things that you don't even agree it should lead you to. Like what happens when the Lord as your shepherd removes you from, I don't know, your job? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's really tangible. That's not happening a lot right now because there's a billion jobs, okay? But let's just say that happens. If the Lord is your shepherd, you respond to that in a certain way by saying, He must be leading me in another place. He must be leading me to something I don't know better. He might even be leading you to something that pays less, but you'll be happier. I don't know what the case may be, but the Lord's my shepherd. If the Lord is not your shepherd, you know it immediately when you walk through something like that because you start to get worried. The Lord is my shepherd. Next step, I lack. Nothing. I lack nothing. Why do you lack nothing? Only because the Lord is your shepherd. If, if, if you remove the Lord as my shepherd, you can no longer say about you that you lack nothing. The only way that you're in the place that you lack nothing is if you have solidified that the Lord is your shepherd. Good? I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside waters of rest and restores my life. Okay, so he makes me rest and then that rest restores my life. Okay, he makes me rest and that rest restores me. The only way you can adequately rest is if you are convinced that you lack nothing. Because what keeps Americans from resting? The idea that if I stop, suddenly I lose. You know what I'm saying? I mean, even with cell phones now, we're, we, we never really leave work. 
You know, and I'm speaking like as a pastor, you have to fight hard to leave work because we don't even do that. And the reason we don't do that is we believe if we rest, then we're going to lack. And we believe that if we rest, we're going to lack because the Lord is not our shepherd. But if the Lord is my shepherd and I know I lack nothing, suddenly I have the freedom to rest. And when I have the freedom to rest, I find restoration for my life. Because you and I live life to the full only in rest. Okay? So if you feel burned out, it's because you're not resting. And if you're not resting, it's probably because you believe if you stop that you're going to lack. And if you believe if you stop you're going to lack, it's primarily because the Lord is really not your shepherd. See this? Okay. He makes me rest, restores my life. Now, now here, here comes the cool part. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil because you're with me. Okay? So, valley of death. I don't fear. Why? You are with me. Okay? And then, rod and staff. Let me just take a few minutes on this. Okay. Before the, the uh, verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. Right before that, he says, he leads me in right paths for his name's sake. He leads me in right paths or righteous paths for his name's sake. Okay. He is leading me. He is my shepherd. Therefore, if I'm in a place that feels like it will kill me, which is the valley of the shadow of death. You're not dead, but it feels like death. It's a shadow of death, okay? If I'm in a place that feels like it's going to kill me, it's not because I accidentally found myself there. It's actually because he led me there. And if he led me there, I don't fear it. Why? Because if he led me there, he's there with me. Because he's my shepherd. And if he's my shepherd, I don't lack. And if I don't lack, I can rest. And if I rest, I'll have restoration of life. Therefore, even when it feels like I'm going through a death situation or a situation that's going to take me under, my life has been restored by way of rest and trust and God being my shepherd. Therefore, I don't fear anything. Why? Because he's with me. Okay? And not only is he with me, it says, your rod and your staff comfort me. The rod right there is, um, it stands for protection. A shepherd's rod was for protecting the sheep. So even if I'm in a valley of death, I don't fear it. Why? Because you're protecting me from death. Okay? Not only that, your staff comforts me. A shepherd's staff was to keep sheep from wandering off. So not only are you protecting me, you're also making sure that when I get in the valley of death, I don't start wandering off trying to find a mountain. <laughs> okay? Now, why is this so important? Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. David here is pointing to the wilderness when they are in between Egypt and the promised land and they have enemies literally all around them. And in that place, the Lord provides them the manna. 
He provides them quail. He protects them. He anoints them as his people. He gives them the law, right? He makes a covenant with them. And so there in the valley of death, you prepare a table, which is provision. It's everything I need. And, and you anoint me with his own oil. Now, we've made anointing something crazy. Anointing, Jesus was called the anointed one, okay? Anointing is simply empowerment for whatever, and uh, whatever the Lord's called you to. That's all anointing is, that you are marked, you are covered as his. When, uh, when the priest would be anointed, um, they wouldn't just take some, i got some oil right here. They wouldn't just take some oil and dab it on their finger and wipe it across their head. They'd take a big old thing of oil and dump it on their head. And so their entire body was covered and drenched in oil. Why? Because it was a sign that their anointing is their protection against anything that might try to infiltrate their priesthood. So their anointing was their covering. So in the valley of death, that feels like it will kill me, there you prepare a table for me. And not only do you prepare a table for me, you anoint me there with oil and my cup overflows. In the last part, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word surely there, better translation would be only, only goodness. And then the word mercy could also be translated kindness. Okay? So, here, remember, we're still in the valley of the shadow of death. Never left. There, only goodness and kindness you want to know the other if you were listening to prayer thursday you know this the other translation for that word is kindness it's mercy the other translation is devotion so there only goodness and god's devotion to you and i chase me all the days of my life and then here's how it ends here's how it ends all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, so really, excuse my handwriting. So really, Psalm 23 is a journey to the house of the Lord. Okay? So, let's go back and let's talk through this real quick. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me rest. He restores my life. He leads me into the valley of death. What does Jesus say? Lay down your life to find it, or if you find your life, you'll lose it. Okay? So he leads me to the place that feels like it's killing me, but there I don't fear it because he's protecting me and he's making sure I don't get out too early. And he's with me. And there... He provides everything that I need. And there, He anoints me with His oil, and my cup runs over. 
And there I understand the revelation that only, only goodness and kindness and mercy and devotion chase me. Okay? They're not waiting to be found by me. They are chasing me every day of my life. And there I find that I belong in the house of the Lord forever. Now, you and I, at some point in our lives, and I would dare say most of us today, have a breakdown in this process in some way, shape, or form. For me, it's right here between these two. I have a really difficult time, especially when things don't look like I think they should look. I have an extremely difficult time trusting that God will make sure I lack nothing and therefore I can rest and therefore I can have my life restored. That's hard for me. It is so hard for me to just say, I'm doing everything I can, but I'm going to trust enough to know that I can lay down my hands, I can rest, and I can know that he's going to take everything that I've done and provide for me in a way that I lack nothing. That's hard for me. Maybe you're a lot more faithful than I am. Maybe you have, like, you know, just, I mean, Gideon-sized faith. I don't know. But for me, that's really difficult. For some of you, you might be walking through this, though. For some of you, you might be in a season or maybe you haven't left a season for a long time that feels like death. And death comes in a lot of different ways. Death could come in a way that you feel like you're losing everything. Death could come in a way that you feel like you're maybe about to lose everything. Death can feel like where you are in life is not where you're supposed to be. And the weight of, oh my Lord, what am I doing with my life? Okay, I just turned you know, 30 and 31 the past couple of years. And there are moments, midlife crisis, and I'm only 30. So, Lord, tell me that's not my midlife. But, you know what I'm saying? I <laughs> hope that's not my midlife. But there are moments when I start to say, like, man, do I have enough in my retirement? I mean, as a 30-year-old, is this how much money I should have in my retirement? You know what I'm saying? Like, and stuff like that. And it, but this might be a lot more serious. Like, maybe, maybe, like, my, our family lost our aunt this year. And there were moments, I'm sure I can't speak for my mom and my family, but, you know, that it just, it just felt like death, you know? I mean, there's moments when people have been diagnosed with things that, that are just completely out of nowhere. There's moments when people have had things for a long time, and it just seems to linger on. i got a professor right now from Harvard that um, has had an incurable cancer for 10 years. He was supposed to die years ago. So he's essentially, at any point, on any day, going to die. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, talk about the valley of death. You know what I'm saying? And when you're there, it can be so easy to start to question God. I've done it. There's moments I still do. That's good. David does the same thing. Hello, Psalm 22, I just read to you. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was never forsaken. But it felt like it enough for him to write the words, where are you? Okay? So you and I are going to, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, going to walk through many things in our lives that feel like death. And when we walk through those things, the natural kickback for us, especially as Western you know, people that like to be in control, the natural kickback for us is, God, what are you doing? And the reason we ask that is because we have an idea in our head of what God should be doing that he's not. 
You know what I'm saying? Like if we agreed with what was happening in our lives, we wouldn't ask the question, God, what are you doing? It's because we disagree with what's happening in our lives that we ask the question, God, what are you doing? Okay? Listen, let me help you. God is not telling you to keep those questions to yourself. It's not a bad thing for you to go to the Lord and say, I don't agree with this. It is not a bad thing for you to go to the Lord and say, this does not make sense. This does not look like your goodness. This does not look like your faithfulness. This does not look like you. I don't even know if I believe if this is you. You know what I'm saying? Listen, that is not a bad thing. Because there is something that happens in the valley of the shadow of death that brings you something you could not get, listen, any other way but being in the valley of the shadow of death. There is an anointing, there is a provision, there's an understanding of goodness and kindness, and there is an understanding of what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord. You cannot find unless you find it in the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death is a doorway to a life that can only come by way of you dying first. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we say this stuff all the time. You must die to yourself. All the time we say that. But then when God sends us through a season that requires us to die to some things in ourselves, we still go, oh God, where are you? No, that's the same stuff we've been preaching. You know? But that doesn't make it easier. I mean, it doesn't make it easier when you're sitting in a room with somebody, with a family, with our family back in February, when you're sitting in a room with people saying, how did this happen? Three months ago, everybody was happy and didn't know anything was going on. And here we are at a funeral. How, how did we get here? It doesn't help when you're sitting in a room like that to say, well, there's purpose in it. That doesn't help. Any of you that have been through anything, you know that. I'm sure that's probably happened to a lot of you that have been through stuff. I know it's happened. It's like, well, God's going to bring goodness out of it. That doesn't help when you're in the valley of the shadow of death. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't. Even if it's true, it is true. God will absolutely work it all for your good. But it doesn't help when you're feeling crushed. What does help is when you get to the valley, and this is why I read Psalm 22 first. When you get to the valley and you find a God that is not distant from the valley telling you you have to walk through this in order to find something about me, you find a God that says, I know exactly what you're walking through because I am with you. This is what he says in, in, a, in a Egypt, Lord, in Exodus. When he goes to Moses at the burning bush, I've shared this a few weeks in a row um, to iterate it, but he goes to Moses and he says, I know the suffering of my people. Okay? Yada in Hebrew is not I know. It's I experience the suffering of my people. So he goes to Moses and says, I'm going to deliver my people. And I know their suffering. And the reason I know it is because when they were getting beat, I was getting beat. I, I was there. I was in the hospital. I was in the phone call. I was with you when you felt like you were being crushed to the point of death. Not only was I with you, I was also being crushed to the point of death with you. That's what God means. When he says, I fear nothing because you are with me, it's not just some symbolic like, you know, hey, man, we do this in church a lot, you know, I'm going to walk through this with you. 
You know what I'm saying? And, and we have a lot of people that do that in a really great way. But how many of you have had friends or family members that like are with you in it? You know what I'm saying? Like when you're walking through what feels like death, that you know they feel the same measure of weight and heaviness that you feel. We don't have that a lot. But Jesus is the shepherd that when a wolf or when death comes to get us, he doesn't flee to his distant heaven and say, get through the test and then you'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. No, he's the shepherd that steps in and says, if somebody's going to die, it's going to be me before it's my sheep. He, He is with us. And there... His rod and his staff don't get us out. They comfort us. Do you see this? See, we think faith is us being in the valley of death, but just believing we're still on the mountain. You know what I'm saying? We think faith is us being in the valley of death, but we've got to do like this. And like, I'm, I believe I'm on the mountain, 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 mountain. I'm not in the death. I'm not in 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 death. I have faith. I have faith. I'm in the mountain. That's what we believe faith is. No. Faith is you being in the valley and seeing him there with you in the valley. And this is, this is big faith. Having the guts to remain in the valley as long as he needs you to remain there. That's faith. Faith is you being in the valley for 10 years and not knowing why and not knowing how, but you knowing that he is with me, therefore I don't fear. And suddenly you begin to find a goodness and a kindness and an anointing and a provision and a house that you could not find any other way than realizing he is a God that is not distant. He is a God that is not obscure and austere and this big, crazy, Zeus-like thing. But he is a God that is not just with us. He became us and experienced everything that we experience as us. Okay, that's the incarnation. And that's why Psalm 22 is so important that Psalm 23 was evoked by it because Psalm 22 is a psalm that starts out with, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the end of it gets to that this will proclaim your deliverance to people even yet unborn, saying that he has done it all. It begins with, where on earth are you? And ends with salvation coming to the human race by way of what started with, God, my God, where are you? Salvation and deliverance in Psalm 22 does not come to the human race unless it begins with, God, where on earth are you? In the valley of death is where we found salvation. In the valley of death is where we found resurrection. Resurrection life and life aren't the same thing. Life is life with the potential to die. Resurrection life is life without the potential to die. So he found us in death so that he could bring us into a life that death no longer had any say over. Y'all good? So, house of the Lord, goodness and kindness, table provision, you anoint me, etc. I want to read this quote by Oswald Chambers. Um, I found this, uh, y'all know the, the book, um, uh, Glory for My Utmost for Your Highest. Yes, 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 yeah. 
So um, it's funny, speaking about my aunt, they, uh, they loved that book, loved it, loved it, loved it. And I know, I th- I'm pretty sure that's the biggest, the best-selling book outside of the Bible. I'm, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. So, yeah, yeah. This is what he said. I don't even know if he said this in this book, but this is a quote from him. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. That was in 1874, I believe. Or No, excuse me, 1884. I believe that was said somewhere around there. When, when, you're, when you're here and you begin to doubt, it's not a sign that you've lost faith or that you lack faith. It's probably a sign that you're about to get some answers that you would have never had had you not first gone through doubt. This is what's happening in the church right now. Um, that, uh, this, the, big, you know, the big word is deconstruction. I hate that word. Um, deconstruction. Nobody's deconstructing anything. People are just going through and finding that doesn't make sense. The six-day creation thing, that kind of doesn't make any sense. You know what I'm saying? That doesn't mean they're tearing down their faith. It actually means they're building up their faith. It means they're believing in the right stuff. You know? Or... The rapture, you know, y'all have been with me. So, you know, the, the rapture, man, I just, I just don't know if that's a thing. That's an amazing thing to question. You know what I mean? You should absolutely question that because it's nowhere to be found in history. You know? So, I mean, but, but it's like, so, but people are now in the church starting to question things that they grew up with, not because they don't read the Bible, but because they're starting to read the Bible and realize some of the stuff they see in here is not like some of the stuff they heard up here. And that's not bad, and it's not deconstruction. It's actually a place where we're, I believe, inheriting some provision and anointing and goodness and kindness that we couldn't get on the other side of death. But now that we're walking through this place where a lot of this evangelical, you know, southern Bible Belt beliefs that we have had for so many years that none of the early church had. Now that all that stuff is starting to fall away, we're finding churches that hold on tight to that are really struggling and churches that are willing to have a place that people can walk in and say, I've got questions about this. And we say, praise God, bring them on. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that I, you mark my words right now. I might not even be alive to see it, but I'm going to tell you, you mark my words right now, that this, the, the next move in the church the next big shift in the church is this, what we're calling deconstruction. And churches are not ready for it. Churches are not ready for it. They're hiding from it. They're backing away from it. Leaders don't know how to answer these questions because all they've ever been taught is the typical line of thinking, right? And, we're back, and I promise you, the generation coming up is not faithless, and they're not running from Jesus. Megan, you know this. You're at USC all the time. The genera- this generation is not running from Jesus, They're trying to find a Jesus that none of us have to offer. And it's not because the culture around them is trying to create a Jesus for them. It's because they're finding a Jesus in here that looks a lot different than the Jesus they were told about growing up. And I say, amen. That, it has to happen. I don't think people are losing their faith. I think the church is declining right now, not because people are running from Jesus. I think people are trying to run to Jesus, and they don't know where to run. And so here's what's happening in the church at large is we're going through the valley of death. 
God, the church is declining at rates we've never seen. Praise God. The valley of death. You know what I'm saying? Because it's right here where we need to find an anointing that we do not have. We have got to find an anointing that teaches the goodness and the kindness and the devotion of God forever that leads us back into the house of the Lord. Because right now, we're more in the house of Baal than we're in the house of the Lord. We are. We need to find the Lord. And the only way to find the Lord is for us to go through the valley of death. Why? Because it reveals in us that the Lord's actually not our shepherd as much as we think. But if we can put the Lord back at the beginning, suddenly we'll start to find all this stuff that we strive for fall into place naturally. I was, um, uh, when was this? A couple of weeks ago, me and Veda, um, no, it's about a month ago now. My days are all mixed up. So I told y'all earlier about the guy across the street from me, amazing people from New Jersey. But the guy across the street from me put up, I mean, just, just spent so much money on Halloween decorations. And um, <laughs> so much money. I, I would love to have that money. But, um, but anyway, and uh, there's just, just things everywhere and strobe lights and just, you know, all that stuff. And um, so Veda, of course, they're literally directly across the street. Doesn't like that. You know what I mean? Like, neither do I. But um, she wouldn't go outside anymore. She wouldn't even let us open the garage doors in our house because she was afraid of the house across the street. So um, I did what any good parent does, and I said, we're going to go to across the street. And so, um, so anyway, so we go for a walk, and uh, she's just terrified and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I'm out to prove to her this is all, this all fake stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to be afraid of this stuff. And so we walk across the street. She realizes, you know, it's all fake. It's all, you know, whatever. And now she's totally fine. In the moment when I'm leading her directly into the thing that she most fears, right, I, I, I would dare say she doubted my goodness. You know what I'm saying? I would dare say in that moment that she doubted that I was a good dad because I was forcing her to face the very thing she was most afraid of. But when she gets there and realizes the thing that she is most afraid of is actually fake, Suddenly, she's not afraid of the thing that she was most afraid of a few moments before. And all it took was her understanding that my dad would actually never lead me into something that I would be afraid of. In other words, if my dad is leading me into this, it must be for my own good, even if it scares the ever-loving daylights out of me. Salah. How many of us have things in our lives that we greatly fear that are not real. Like, my greatest fear in life, if I'm just giving you all my cards, my greatest fear in life is not having enough money, either in this church or my own family. My greatest fear in life. If that's your greatest fear in life, definitely don't start a church. <laughs> you know, so that, you know. But the Lord has provided for us every single step of the way without fail without question before we could ever voice our anxiety about not having enough he provided every time you know what i'm saying so it is fake for me to doubt the goodness of a god that has never given me a reason to doubt his goodness absolute fake so what the lord will do and what he has done this year is he'll lead us to the place that is our greatest 
fear in order to show us that there's actually nothing to fear. And when you realize there's nothing to fear, suddenly you can start to live in all of this stuff that you weren't living in before because there was a big old thing standing in the middle of it called whatever X, Y, and Z that you're afraid of. Whatever feels like it's going to take you under. So there's multiple things that begin to work on us through Psalm 23, but they all hinge, they all culminate in this valley. The valley of the shadow of death is the culmination of the entire psalm. This is the point. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down. He restores my life, and he leads me in the valley of death. But once I'm in the valley of death, I have a table, I have an anointing, I have a goodness, I have a kindness, and I have the house of the Lord. This is also, I believe, a chiasm. Okay? Um, because the Lord is my shepherd, I'm in the house of the Lord. Okay? I lack nothing. Goodness and kindness chase me forever. Okay? He makes me lie down and rest. And if you're resting, you get your life restored. He prepares a table for before me. The table's prepared for me, which means I didn't do anything to prepare the table, which means I was at rest. Okay? And he anointed me with his own oil, and the anointing is my life. And what do we find in the middle? The valley of the shadow of death. A chiasm in Hebrew is, is basically a, a way to structure literature to point to a main point. Okay? So typically, and it happens a couple of different ways, but typically the first and the last points or verses uh, will essentially say the same thing, then the ones inside will say the same thing, then the ones inside, and then ultimately whatever's in the middle is typically the point of whatever the passage is, okay? So this is why I say this. What, what um, David is trying to get us to see that there, there's something that happens in this valley of death that is not only necessary, I mean, it is it is everything for you and I as those who follow Christ. Everything. Without the valley of death, there are so many different things in our life we don't get access to. So here's why I wanted to preach this today. A, I know there's a lot of you, even in this family, that are walking through some really tough things right now. Okay? Um, not only that, there's some of you that have walked through a lot of tough things in the past, or maybe you're going to walk through some tough things coming up. I mean, election season's this week. The election's Tuesday. We're all about to walk through some really tough things. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, but that was more, more of a joke. Christmas is coming up. And so you get to, or Thanksgiving, you get to sit around the table with your family and talk about the election coming up. I mean, like, that's like, you know, luckily our family does do that. But if your family does that, Lord, help us. And so that's basically death. I mean, I mean, essentially, it's a big old taste of death. And so... Um, <laughs> Oh Lord, especially if you have people on, on both sides of the you know, both sides of the aisle, oh, it's really death. Um, but but here's what I want to say: the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death. Listen, if the Lord led you there, two things, two things. If the Lord led you there, He is with you. Okay, if the Lord led you there, He's with you. I'm gonna pull this up. These are the two points I want to make today. After all that. Number one, he is with you. He never left. He's not surprised. He isn't um, distant. 
He isn't annoyed. Okay? He is with you. And not just with you. Not just like he's walking with you. He is experiencing it. With you. Isaiah, you can hop up here. He's, he's not just with you. He's experiencing it with you. Okay? And number two. Oh, Lord. It's awful. Right. Number two. Last point. Okay? If you'll see it right, if you will allow yourself to be convinced of his presence with you in the valley of the shadow of death, then life to the full is on the other side. If you will allow yourself to understand and embrace him being with you, then you can find life on the other side of it. Even if, listen, even if it doesn't end the way that you thought it would end. Even if you got here in the valley of death, even if you got there and the very thing that you thought you were most afraid of actually begins to happen. It doesn't mean that things begin to disappear. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're not going to face anything you know, bad. I'm, this is the complete opposite. As those who follow Christ, we've kind of signed up for things that are going to be really, really difficult just as he went through things that are really, really difficult. We are. And until he comes back and establishes his kingdom in full and every human being is resurrected again out of death, until that moment, you and I are living in what a lot of scholars call the already not yet. We've already been redeemed and the kingdom has already been established Yet, it hasn't fully been redeemed and fully been established until his return. So we're in this tension where you and I have been completely redeemed. We've been completely saved. And in reality, the, entire, the entirety of those who are Christ have been redeemed and saved. But we're in this tension where the earth is still groaning for the manifestation of those who have been redeemed. That's what Romans 8 says, 8.19. That the earth is groaning, is standing on tiptoe, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be manifest. What does that mean? It means the entire creation is not enough for us to be reconciled to God. We're reconciled to God. Now the creation is standing on tiptoe, waiting for the moment that you and I actually start to live like we've been reconciled to God. But until that moment, it doesn't mean we're never going to walk through anything tough. Okay? It means he's going to be with us when we walk through those things. And he's going to give us life on the other side of death. Resurrection. I love sometimes talking about this because I believe in and we believe in healing. And so um, healing is kind of one of those things in the church has, that has become just, just, it's like almost like an all or nothing. Like either you believe no one is supposed to be sick, no one's supposed to be dead, no one's supposed to be this, or you don't believe in healing at all. 
but but there, there's there's so many like issues thinking like this. Number one is at what age does that run out? Like if somebody's 110 years old, why don't you pray for them to be healed of their oldness? Because you know that it's probably time for them to die. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, they're just old. I mean, so, but you see, there's so many inconsistencies with what we think. What is it 70? Is it 75? Is it 80? At what point does that run out? You know what I mean? If it's stage four cancer or if it's stage one cancer, at what point do we stay, you know, we give up? See, there's so, so what we do is we live in a trust that no matter what comes my way, he is bringing good out of it. It doesn't mean we're not going to face anything. It doesn't mean we're not going to walk through things that are tough. It doesn't mean that you're never going to get a cold or whatever. What it does mean is that even when you walk through the effects of a groaning creation, which it is groaning, by the way, when you walk through the effects of an ever-groaning creation, you might feel like it's going to take you under, but in the end, victory belongs to the Lord. And even those who have died at the stake, martyred for Christ, it did not end in death even though they are asleep. Because he's going to come back and every single human being that has died will be resurrected to eternal life. And it's there in the valley that we find a life that we did not have on the other side of death. So no matter how the story ends, we get the final say. Even when we were walking through this thing back in uh, February with my aunt, and I'm just trying to speak from experience. I don't want to speak from anybody else's uh, experience. But there's so much peace that comes knowing that there is not a distant billion light year away heaven that people are floating to and playing harps on a cloud all day. But that there is going to come a moment when Christ plants his feet in the ground and every dead person rises fully fleshed, fully boned, fully themselves back to resurrection life. That is the hope of our salvation. Listen, it's not heaven. Heaven's going to be amazing. But heaven is not what we are aimed at. We're aiming at new creation and resurrection. And if we make it to heaven along the way, then praise God. But I'm not going to be, and you, let me help you. You're not going to be in heaven forever. Heaven is the model for the new creation. Not the final resting place of the believers. And listen, and all you got to do is just, oh, yeah, you know, you know what I'm saying? Lord, you know, so, so just like all the hymns that talk about, um, we'll go and be with him forever in heaven. Wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. I'll fly away. Oh, glory. I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. Why? Not because I'll be resurrected, because I'll fly away. Wrong. That's wrong. Saying? We don't play, I'll fly away. Do you know why? Because it's wrong. You know? Nobody's flying. Nobody's flying. Okay? It's like the office episode when Michael Scott dresses up as Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And he calls David Wallace and he says, David, guess what I'm sitting here dressed up as? Heals lepers, has the power of flight. I'm Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? And as, fun, as funny as that is, how, how many of you, like, believe, that's, that's what we think. You know what I'm saying? I can't wait to get to heaven when I fly around everywhere. Like, I mean, 
You know what I'm saying? It's like watching a Marvel movie. Lord, like, no. The, the hope of our salvation is resurrection. I don't know when that we got away from that. I don't know when we got away from that. And it's really tough to sit at a funeral and talk to people that have just lost a loved one and say, they're somewhere with Jesus. That gives you no comfort. At least it doesn't for me. You know what I'm saying? Like if something happened to, you know, Jordan, and somebody said, hey, she, she's just going to be with Jesus. She's gone? Oh, great. I love that. It's amazing. You know? No. But if you begin to tell me there's coming a day, and it's a lot sooner than you think, where she will get up. Talk about hope. You know what I'm saying? Why am I talking about resurrection? Because resurrection doesn't just happen when you breathe your last breath. Resurrection happens when you walk through things that you feel like are going to absolutely take you under, and they do not. And on the other side of that, you begin to live a life that you did not live before you walked through those things. That's called resurrection life. That is a type and shadow of the things to come. And you and I are called to live in resurrection life. And the way we do that is to lay down our lives in order to find it. That's why we come to church. That's why we rest. That's why we tithe. That's why we are part of a family. That's why we study. That's why we're in devotion with the Lord. That's why we uh, do everything that we do in love and kindness. The reason we do everything that we do is not because that's the Christian thing to do. It's not the Christian thing to do, the tithe. It's the thing to do for those that have died to their own economic status and instead receive kingdom economic status that I believe is free from recession. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we started our church in 2017. In 2020, there was a pandemic. So we made it through that. Now we're getting to the place that all churches fear, which is recession. Because what happens in recession? People lose their jobs, people make less money. And when people lose their job and make less money, guess what they stop doing? giving. You know what I mean? And so here we are. We have just made our little old way through a pandemic, and now we're about to make our little old way through a recession. And let me tell you, let me just prophetically tell you what's going to happen on the other side of this. We'll be stronger on the other side of this financially than we were before. Why? Because we have inherited a kingdom that does not go through recession. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but it only happens if you allow yourself to walk through the valley that feels like death. So let me pray over you. Um, this is a little different um, today, but I just, I felt this on me all week long, this Psalm 23 thing. There is a big pattern and it has to start with the Lord is my shepherd. It has to start with the Lord is my shepherd. So let me pray over you and then, uh, and then we'll be done. Lord, I pray right now that you would allow us to find the places in our lives where you are not shepherding. And I pray that we would begin to submit those things to the shepherdhood of the Lord. And as you lead us to the place of rest, as you lead us to the place of not lacking anything, and even as you lead us to the place where things die, we don't fear it because you're with us. Your provision and your protection from wondering, they comfort us. I cannot, listen, I cannot wonder from your hands because it is your hands that are keeping me from wondering. I, listen, you and I cannot lack. It is illegal for you and I to lack anything. Here's the thing. 
that we need. Why? Because the Lord is our shepherd. As your eyes are closed, I want to I finish with this picture. So keep your eyes closed. I just want you to picture this in your head. The, the shepherds that David would have been referring to and then Jesus also would have been referring to, um, number one, were mostly women. So there were, there were mostly women shepherds in this uh, time. But um, the way that they would lead their sheep, um, the land they would lead them through, and I just want you to picture this, was not a luscious green grass land. It actually looked more like a parched desert. And I should have brought a picture to show y'all, but you know, just kind of picture this in your mind. The land that in in the ancient Near East where they would send sheep through was not just this green, luscious grassland. It was a desert. And the reason that shepherds had to lead them to specific places was because of where the rain would fall and then the rain would run down the, the, uh, the, ground, the cracks in the ground, there were certain spots of green grass in the middle of these deserts. And so the shepherd would, before he ever, listen to this, before he ever led sheep, the shepherd would go and scout out all the places in this desert where there was green grass. And once he found the places where there was green grass, he would go back to the sheep and he would lead them out to the places where there were those patches of green grass, where they would lay down and rest to the places where there was water. But if you're looking at it with the naked eye, not knowing that, it looks like your shepherd, if you're a sheep, is leading you literally to die in this big old desert. And what the sheep have no idea about is that their shepherd has actually already gone out through the land and scouted out and knows exactly where all the places of green grass are to lead you there. Not only so that you don't die, but that's so that you make it to the destination that you're supposed to make it to healthy and full. And all that's required of the sheep, all that's required of the sheep is to just trust that the shepherd has been there and knows where to go. So I'm telling you today, you don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to know where this is going. You don't have to know where this is leading. All you've got to know is that before you stepped into it, your shepherd stepped into it. And when he did, he found all the places that will provide everything that you need along the way. And he is leading you through that to all those places that you don't need to know where they are. You just got to trust that he's your shepherd. And his sheep know his voice. So God, I thank you that that is who you are that you are a shepherd, that you're the good shepherd. That you're not a hired hand that when the wolf comes in, you leave us to die. You're actually the shepherd that lays down your life for the sake of your sheep. And that if one sheep runs away, you're willing to leave the 99 to go after the one that has ran away because you are unwilling to live without any of them. That's just who you are. So, Lord, we honor you and love you in this place in your name.
Amen.